Greetings and welcome to the Animal Wellness Podcast, the official podcast of Animal Wellness Action. Hi, I'm your host, Joseph Grove. On this show, we talk about animals from the perspective of people who care about them and have the ability to improve their lives by influencing culture and supporting new laws and regulations accordingly. To stay up to date with all of our news and information, subscribe to this podcast, receive our free newsletters and more, you can visit animalwellnessaction.org. Wayne Paselli is our founder and president. Marty Irby, executive director, are with me today. Wayne is, as I mentioned, uh, the founder. Marty, in addition to serving as, a, as executive director, is our chief lobbyist up on the Hill. He's been very busy. Uh, I think we have an interesting show for our audience today, and it's super timely because it deals with food. And um, as of this recording, Thanksgiving is just over a week away. Uh, we're joined by guest Dan Butner, who is a number one, two time number one New York Times bestselling author of The Blue Zones Kitchen, uh, who has just released a new book called The Blue Zones American Kitchen 100 Recipes to live to 100. We'll get back to him in a moment. Uh, it's a it's a beautiful book, Dan. I just got to say, I, I really appreciate it. And I will, I will confess to you uh, that uh, I'm, I'm going to re-gift it. So I, I don't even have a toaster, Dan. Uh, I found in my closet like a bagel splitter and I had no idea what it was. I said, is this for like guillotining small rodents or whatever? So not a cook. One is on my gift list and by golly, they're going to they're going to get uh, the Blue Zones American Kitchen. So thank you for helping me with my shopping uh, list there. Uh, this is timely, too, because we've just posted a great deal of content uh, about the recently concluded election. Uh, you can go back. You can read some of our endorsements for the candidates who ran. We had a very good success rate in our endorsements. Many of our candidates prevailed, and we're grateful for that. Uh, and then Wayne Paselli has written uh, some fairly in-depth analysis of the election. Finally, on Facebook, if you go to our Facebook page, you'll find an interview Wayne and I did just a couple of days ago uh, about the election. He breaks down in our Facebook Live what the results mean for animals. And at this time of year, we would be remiss if we didn't ask you to consider supporting us financially. Giving Tuesday is coming up. Many people like yourself are considering how to make the world a better place with their cash as the year end approaches. We sure hope you will consider us where we run a lean machine around here. Your money goes to help animals. And if you can contribute uh, and better yet, consider becoming a monthly sustainer, uh, we'd sure appreciate that. And you could rest assured uh, that good for animals will come from it. Before we get into the meat of the show, I'm going to turn it over to Marty Irby. Uh, our executive director for a legislative update. Well, we've got a lot of exciting things going on. As you all know, the Big Cat Public Safety Act has been our number one priority this Congress. It passed the House back in July. It's been a waiting action in the Senate because we had three senators put a hold on the bill, two released the hold, and we're down to just one. We believe that that hold is going to be released this week. We've made an agreement with that senator, and we're hopeful that we see the Big Cat Public Safety Act head to President Biden's desk to be signed into law in the coming weeks. He has already said publicly that he will sign it. So that's the most likely bill to get done. Second is the FDA Modernization Act that repeals a 1938 mandate requiring animal testing for any drug or vaccine approved by the FDA. That legislation has passed the House in one form in a larger package. 
passed the Senate committee in another form, and ultimately didn't get a vote. So we were involved in what I believe to be the greatest coup I've seen on animal protection legislation, thanks to your senator, Rand Paul from Kentucky and Senator Cory Booker from New Jersey, who reintroduced the bill as it had been changed on September 29th. The legislation came to a vote and passed the Senate by unanimous consent with no opposition on September 29th was delivered to the House desk, and now we're just awaiting action in the House where it should pass by an overwhelming margin if we can get it to a vote. Our only issue right now is the committee chair, Frank Pallone from New Jersey, who's a Democrat. We need him to sign off on it, and we're working on him and wearing him down. There are a couple of other bills that we've talked about this Congress, the SAFE Act in horse slaughter. I don't think we're going to see much action on that moving forward, but the Prevent All Soaring Tactics Act, the bill that I have bled over and worked so hard for a decade to pass, did clear the House this week. Uh, the vote wasn't as good as we wanted it to be. It was 304 to 111, and that is a little bit less of an amount of supportive members than we saw in 2019 when we passed it by 333 to 96. So unfortunately, I think the bill is losing steam. It's been kicked around for so long, and people are just tired of it. They want to see soaring in, but they're tired of hearing about it. I think with that vote, we're not going to see any action in the Senate, and our hope is that in the next Congress, in 2013, we're able to go back to a position where we can work on a compromise with people in the breed and the animal space to finally get something done. Other than that, uh, there's really not a lot going. We have an appropriations package at the end of the year that we'll likely see that will fund the government for 2023. There's a chance we could see some action for an animal cruelty crimes unit, or at least funding for it at the Department of Justice we've been working on. We'll definitely see a big increase in funding for the Horse Protection Act enforcement at USDA that we've been working on for many years. And we may have an opportunity before the year is over to see some action on the Bear Protection Act slash Bear Poaching Elimination Act, that's the Senate bill name, uh, that would ban the trade in bear gallbladders that the Chinese government has been promoting this bile that comes from the gallbladders as a treatment for COVID-19 with no scientific basis. So that's where we are. Uh, we will likely get these two bills done, the big cat bill and the FDA bill, and are looking forward to the 118th Congress with a lot of new members and an exciting future ahead. All right, uh, Marty, thank you for that. Good luck on the Hill. And I appreciate uh, that update. And I know our listeners do too. As I mentioned, our guest today is Dan Butner. He is a National Geographic Fellow a multiple New York Times bestselling author and the founder of Blue Zones, an organization dedicated to creating healthy communities around the United States. His newest book is available for pre-order now and is called The Blue Zones American Kitchen, 100 Recipes to Live to 100. Uh, Daniel, correct me if I say any of this wrong, but uh, Dan has identified five places in the world, called them Blue Zones, where people live the longest. Uh, he then distilled their longevity-enhancing commonalities into a scent he calls the Power Nine. It's a fascinating list, but the one that caught our attention is called Plant Slant. It tells us that among the five blue zones, meat is eaten only about five times a month on average. Usually then, it's pork, and in a portion the size of a deck of cards. Uh, once again, it seems, we are reminded uh, that helping animals in this case, by eating fewer of them, helps us all. Dan, how'd I do? Have I, have I got it in a nutshell? <laughs> you nailed it. I, I almost feel like calling it a day. Uh, but uh, all right, thanks for, thanks for listening, everyone. I <laughs> uh, appreciate it. <laughs> Dan, you did great. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Brevity is my strength. <laughs> yeah. So, so tell us what you saw in these five cultures relative to diet. Certainly, you mentioned that they eat 
much less meat than Americans do. Uh, but what about dairy, eggs? And, and part two of that question would be, what sorts of health benefits did you see as a result? Well, it goes far beyond what I saw. I've, I've been working on this project for 20 years with National Geographic. And the idea is only 20% of how long you live is dictated by your genes. The other 80% is something else. So uh, we found these five areas where people are living about a decade longer with a fraction of the rate of uh, chronic diseases, the diseases that foreshorten our lives. But to really get at what people ate, if you want to know what a centenarian ate to live to be 100, you have to, you can't just ask them what he's been eating lately because one, you know, diets change over time and two, they don't remember. So to get at that, we, we aggregated 155 dietary surveys done in all five blue zones over the last 85 years. And when you average them out, you see that people are eating 80 to 100% uh, whole food plant-based diet. Some cultures are completely uh, um, plant-based, uh, plant um, but they did eat some meat. And remember, they needed calories to survive. So it's not like Americans who have many food choices and you know still make the wrong choice, but um, uh, they ate meat on average about five times per month. Uh, very few eggs, and it was eggs, it was from a chicken, it was running outdoors its whole life. Um, no cow's dairy, interestingly. We saw a little goat's milk and a little bit of uh, sheep's milk, but no cow's dairy figures into the diets of longevity. The pillars of every longevity diet in the world are whole grains, corn, wheat, and rice, greens, about 70 varieties, tubers, like sweet potatoes and uh, turnips and, and um, regular potatoes, nuts, and the cornerstone, every longevity diet in the world was beans. And we find that people who eat about a cup of beans a day live about four years longer than people who are getting their protein from other sources. Wayne, this, this sounds very much like the message um, our, our very own Dr. Mills preaches that by keeping animals and their products off our plate, we do good for, for people as well. Well, and it's, I think what's noteworthy about Dan's analysis, and it's fascinating, and his promotion of this has consequences for the health of us all and the health of the planet, is that it's not 100%, you know, it's, but it's a significant departure from the standard American diet. And I guess I just wanted to ask, Dan, I mean, uh, it's amazing that we have deviated so much from that dietary practice that you've noted are you seeing that your promotion of this idea in many settings is, is being listened to by healthcare professionals or doctors or other influencers to, you know, change behaviors? Yes. I mean, you know, I've, got, I've written cover stories for National Geographic, uh, New York Times Magazine, uh, the New England Journal of Medicine, British Journal of Medicine. They've all written Blue Zones Up. So it is getting in several academic articles. But, you know, promotion only goes so far. Uh, in Blue Zones, people are living a long time uh, eating a plant-based diet, not because they have better discipline or a heroic sense of individual responsibility, or they have great love for animals, quite honestly. It's because they live in an environment where the cheapest, healthiest, most accessible, and most delicious foods are peasant foods, basically whole plant-based foods. 
And my day job for the past 13 years, I've had the privilege of working in 72 cities, uh, not trying to change people's minds, but change their environment, changing the policies so that um, uh, I don't try to work at your level, Wayne, you're at the federal level with the big boys, but I find I can get a lot done in municipal governments with a mayor and a city council that really cares about the health and well-being of their constituents rather than the business interests of their influencers uh, adopting. We're very successful of getting somewhere between eight and 12 um, policies passed at the municipal level, level favoring um, uh, plant-based foods over junk food. And then also uh, our, our teams go in and they certify restaurants, grocery stores, workplaces, school and churches who also change their environment and policy because it's very hard to get people to remember what to do for long enough. But when you change their environment, you can have a massive impact. And, you know, just one city, Fort Worth, Texas, you know, they have those big stockyards there, the beef obsessed community. We managed to get the top steakhouse serving portobello mushrooms. We saw in the five years we worked there, the BMI or the obesity rate dropped 3%. And their healthcare costs went down by a quarter of a billion dollars a year. Now that was, we didn't do that by convincing a million people to go vegan, but we did it by changing their environment. So they mindlessly ate 20 or 30% less meat and replacing it by plants. And I think that's a stronger way to, to get, make a real difference than, than trying to beat someone over the head with what they should do, as opposed to what our environment constantly pushes us to do. Well, what, what did those municipalities do to influence that behavior? I mean, you said you worked with the local governments. You said it was about access to whole foods. Was that the main issue? It wasn't so much inculcating this value system, but making it available? To them? Well, here's what works. The, the, the easiest way to get shown the door when you go into a city uh, is to tell them what to do. So, But we have created what I call a policy bundle or a policy menu. And we have 30 evidence-based policies that we know occasion healthier eating in that community. And we, we as part of us agreeing to come into the city, we uh, we, the mayor and the city council and the, the different uh, uh, food interests have to sit in a room together. We take them through each of the policies and get their feedback on number one, effectiveness and number one, feasibility. Can you get it done in this city in five years? And every time after you go through all 30 of them, uh, uh, eight to 12 float to the top and we get them passed. And these are simple things like, there are a lot of cities that don't let farmers markets uh, or uh, community gardens or yeah. people to use their front yards for gardens. All these incrementally encourage um, people to grow more vegetables, uh, to change a uh, drive through at fast food restaurants, get people eating more burgers and so forth. So we asked that, and several cities have done this, have gotten rid of the drive-through, which, which makes um, junk food a little less uh, convenient, and um, uh, therefore people are more likely to eat at home and more easy to eat, more likely to eat healthy. So we don't look for the silver bullet, as I know you guys spend a lot of time on. We look for silver buckshot. Um, you know, a few dozen uh, evidence-based uh, nudges or defaults that we know 
will positively influence a, a community for the long run. You know, it seems to me that, that, that people are oddly unmotivated by the prospect of, of living longer. You know, if you tell someone, you know, my age or younger, and, and I think I'm representative of the, of the age group, you know, on this call, well, maybe we're a little bit more concerned if you tell us that we can live longer, right? Because we're at that age where physical precarity is beginning to manifest itself. Uh, but, you know, my, my children who were in their 20s, I mean, you know, living, you know, 10 years longer is so far out in the distance. What kinds of arguments can be made to a younger group that perhaps isn't immediately concerned about the concept of longevity? I mean, this has been proven. You could be biologically younger at every decade. You could be 15 or 20 years younger at every decade, depending on how you treat your body. But even that, there are very, very few people who are going to forego a cupcake at lunch because they think it's going to add two days of life expectancy at the end of their day. People just, their minds just don't work in that way. We're hardwired to crave fat, sugar, salt, and rest whenever we can. Uh, so I, Blue Zones work for the most part, my books notwithstanding, we try to make permanent or semi-permanent changes to your surroundings so that your unconscious choices are architected so you mindlessly make better decisions. And we know from looking at over 50 American cities we worked in, and it's measured by Gallup, by the way, it's not anecdotal, we see it actually works as opposed to diets, which have a shelf life. You know, if you start a diet, um, with after three months, you lose about 10% of people. After seven months, you lose 90%. So diets, exercise programs, um, trying to get people to go on healthier supplements, usually a success in the short run. They're a failure for almost all the people all the time in the long run. So when it comes to longevity, unless it's something you're going to do for a long time, forget about it. It's not going to make a difference. So you need to think long-term. Mm -hmm. Another one of your nine principles is the 80-20 rule, right? Uh, stopping at 80% of um, being- Full stomach. Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. You know, how can the average person kind of gauge that? Yeah, so that was inspired by a Confucian adage that's very much alive in Okinawa. Okinawa is where the longest lived women on the planet have lived. And uh, the, the adage is hara hachibu, stop at 80%. But I have evolved that notion into uh, different things you can do, evidence-based ways that you can keep from overeating. Uh, by the way, 65% of people living on this, on this planet, it used to be, you know, people died of starvation and, you know, you, parents would tell their kids to finish their leftovers on their plate because there are children starving in China. Now, about three quarters of the human population will die of overnutrition. So strategies to lessen the amount of food we eat. So what are a few things that work in your house? First of all, uh, Cornell Food Lab has shown very persuasively that if you take the TV out of your kitchen or other screens, that you eat fewer calories. We tend to eat, if we're watching our TV show, we're mindlessly putting away the calories and our stomach fills up. It takes 30 minutes from the full signal travel from your belly to your brain. And by then, you know, you're, you've eaten two or three plates of food and you're just at the second commercial. But other things that we know work are eating breakfast like a king, lunch like a prince, and dinner like a pauper. So trying to eat big, trying to get all your calories in about a eight to 10 hour window 
otherwise called intermittent fasting, but it's done in all blue zones. And by the way, eating with your family, having your whole family sit down to a meal instead of, you know, eating with one hand on the steering wheel and, you know, the other hand with a burger or something in your hand. These all work very well at, at uh, lessening. The, the other good trick is eating off a smaller plate. A 10-inch plate occasions about 20% fewer calories than eating off a 14-inch plate. Dan, you're very devious. My God, all these little tricks. I, <laughs> I, I, I love it. You know, I, I think, you know, looking broadly, Animal Wellness Action and the Center for Humane Economy, we're about promoting healthfulness, right? Healthfulness for people and animals, healthy communities, safer communities. When we think of safety, you know, sometimes we think of some external threat, but obviously it just makes sense that our diet and what we put into our bodies. Obviously, it could be terrible foods, you know, sugar-based foods, processed foods, factory farmed uh, animal products, but it, you know, could be PFAS, it's chemicals. I mean, all of these things, disease afflicts all of us at some point. And you see so many people who have early onset diseases and threats. You mentioned obesity, of course, which is an epidemic in the United States and through much of the world. I just think we need to expand our definition of healthfulness and safety and think about our own choices. And, you know, in your, in your book, your latest book here that, that is about to be launched in your prior books, it's not just about diet though. It's about family. It's about recreational activities, gardening. What a, what a health promoting activity, you know, that gardening is. Yes, yes, because it's a daily phys nudge to move daily and, you know, you emerge from the activity with fresh vegetables. But to your earlier point, according to the CDC, Center for Disease uh, um, Control, CDC, um, their estimates put it uh, 680,000 Americans die prematurely every year because we're eating the standard American diet, which includes about 220 pounds of meat. I mean, it's just obnoxious. Now, that's more than a half a million people a year. We've lost way more people to our diet than we have in World War I, World War II, the Vietnam War, every war combined. Yet we spent a lot of time uh, thinking about how to uh, treat our the people who give their life for our country well, and not so much about what we could be doing to keep people alive right now. Now, the standard American diet, uh, the, the way we eat it right now, it, with about 70% of it is processed food. And I mentioned how much meat and cheese and dairy. What I did with for the Blue Zone American Kitchen is we know the pattern, the eating pattern of longevity. I worked with a researcher at NYU uh, who found uh, dietary studies done between 1890 and 1920. And we spent 150 hours in archives to find four American cultures that have eaten the same dietary pattern. And we found them among the African-Americans living then, Native, Latino, and Asian-Americans. They were eating essentially a blue whole food plant-based diet with meat as a condiment. So the purpose of writing uh, the Blue Zone American diet was really to propose another standard American diet as practiced by some of these immigrants and ethnicities that have been under celebrated. Uh, and, you know, we sort of forgotten these. And the idea is 
you know, it's really a work of anthropology to bring this diet back and bring it to life with, you know, 100 recipes. People like recipes. We worked hard to find good ones. And then uh, National Geographic did the photography. So I think it looks as good on the on the um, in your kitchen as it does on the uh, on your living room table or your coffee table. But the best way to change our diet, you know, you can say this good for animal rights. You, you can say it's good for the environment. It's good for your health. As Joseph was saying, people in the in the moment don't care that much. I know your audience here, the people listening, I know you guys are on fire um, to do what's right by the animals, but most people aren't. To get most Americans to change, you need to hit them in their taste buds. You need to find, you need to make that plant-based food taste more delicious than their animal drive uh, foods. And uh, you know, the main job here with this this book was to was to curate the the, the best ethnic uh, expertise at making plant-based food taste good. And you know, John Mackey, our friend who was the founder, is the founder of Whole Foods, left recently as its CEO after more than 40 years. He told me that our pal is trained. We've trained it to like the foods that we like. And as you noted earlier, obviously we have instinctive attraction to certain foods because of our human history. But there's no reason that we can't like whole foods. I mean, whole foods to me taste fabulous, but why do we like a Twinkie or potato chips? I mean, our palate can appreciate these things, which is what I love about your latest book is the beauty of the foods. And they are certainly as good tasting as they are beautiful, but what, I mean, they really are beautiful products. Yeah, and to be fair, you know, we're we're so used to napalming our taste buds, or Americans are with meat, cheese, eggs, um, and in some cases, it does require sort of a cold turkey for a few days, so that these nuanced flavors and textures, which you get, you know, meat has one texture, you know, or maybe two, but you know, we have mushrooms and cruciferous and and carrots and and beans, you know, they all have these wonderful textures. So two things, one is to go cold turkey a little bit, but the other thing, you can achieve a flavor that competes with, with meat, cheese, and eggs with oil. Sorry, John Mackey. I know John Mackey's not a fan of oil, but finishing your, your dishes with extra virgin olive oil will ramp up the flavor. Uh, by the way, uh, celery uh, contains a natural monoglutamate, sodium mono, uh, sodium glutamate, sorry, a little dyslexic there, but uh, so that'll uh, putting celery in a dish. A lot of the the dishes we have have um, are one pot meals, but celery enhances flavors. Tomatoes add umami. We love that umami flavor, and then uh, throwing lots of uh, spices, especially the capsium rich peppers, will satisfy the stimulation our our uh, palates have grown used to and uh, make make these plant-based foods taste a lot better. You know, a lot of the recipes in, in your book, you know, some take more time, some take less, but the idea of cooking any meal at home seems to be increasingly, you know, vanishing, uh, you know, and that gets, I think, into some of the other tenets of your, of your power nine. And, and that is, you know, the, the family and loved ones and community. Um, so it's not only a shift in palate, but there's also, I think, entailed, isn't there a, a shift in just our own personal culture on some of this? 
Somewhat. And before we answer that, I want to challenge your audience and you specifically, Joseph, because you said you're going to re-gift my, uh, my book. I'm going to send you another book. You can re-gift that one. But here's what I want you to think about doing. Most of the recipes in these books are one-pot meals. They take less than 20 minutes to assemble, and they'll provide about 10 servings for under a dollar. Um, I, if you get an Instapot or a pressure cooker, you only need one thing. As long as you have a stove, Instapot or a pressure cooker, or even a regular pot, assemble these meals. You can cook 10 meals in 20 minutes. So that's uh, an average of two minutes per meal. Everybody has time for it. And what you have is this absolute gift for your microbiome, your body. It sends a message to the environment. It sends a message to animals. Uh, I think everybody can do it. But to your point, these the, the reason people live a long time in the blue zones is not because they have great discipline or individual responsibility. To sum up the power nine, they're eating the way they eat and they're moving naturally, mostly because they live in walkable communities, but about every 20 minutes because their life is underpinned with purpose. They live in communities where the healthy choice is the easy choice. And the big one is they surround themselves with three to five people who care about them on a bad day, who uh, idea of recreation is walking or gardening or even playing pick and ball as the case of the Adventists, or who are vegetarian or vegan, because we really end up mimicking the behaviors of people around us. So it's, once again, the reason it, it isn't so much of those five things that explain longevity, it's the interconnected, mutually supporting nature of these five things that keep, keep people doing the right thing and avoiding the wrong thing for long enough so they're not developing heart disease, diabetes, avoidable cancers, and dementia. I love that you have flipped the narrative on this, Dan, that it's not harder it's not some enormous investment of time of chopping and shopping and doing all of these things that are time consuming that you've reduced it with these recipes and with these principles to simple acts that are good for self-preservation, but then radiate out to help animals, help the environment, help the planet. And when we can do something selfish that also benefits others, what a perfect set of outcomes that seems to me. That's a very easy sell, actually. Yeah, you know, you have to lead with taste. And Wayne, one of the things I love about you and your organizations, um, you, I, I, you know, full disclosure, you and I hiked together in Slovenia about a month ago, and I, I had a complete download, and I've known you for better part of a decade. Um, but you don't lead with guilt. You're not that scolding. You're not the person who makes people feel terrible about maybe a culture they grew up with. I feel you lead with love and you lead with, with showing people the benefits, whether it's showing lawmakers, well, if you do this, here's the constituents that are now going to vote for you. And your approach is so right on. So, you know, I, I, what I try to do at the municipal level, you're doing at the, at the, at the uh, federal level. And I just salute it and uh, admire it. And, you know, I'm a supporter of yours. Well, th thank you. And, and uh, that's nice of you, but I'm just so impressed with how you're just reframing how we live our daily lives, it's better for us. You know, self-interest is a really powerful motivator and you've 
shown that self-interest doesn't have to be a horrible sacrifice. So I, I love what you're doing. You mentioned that the cultures you examined weren't necessarily uh, doing a lot of what they do dietarily for the benefit of animals. But it would seem to me that a lot of the more humane ways they live would naturally accrue to, to, to better treatment of animals. Among the five countries you or cultures you, you profile, do you find that they're generally kinder to nature as well as they are even inadvertently to themselves? Yes. They, in all five, you know, Sardinia and Ikaria, they all have they've had a symbiotic relationship with goat and sheep. And they, they're all named. Um, they, they're cared for every morning. I, I actually embed it with shepherds for a week. Uh, shepherds, uh, the sheep there are mostly used for wool and for milk. They spend their entire lives in fields with the shepherd right next to them. I've seen shepherds sleeping with their, not, not in a sexual way, but sleeping with their animals. So there, there is a, a symbiosis um, uh, there. Some people would argue that's not right under any conditions, but um, the, you're, we're looking here at civilizations that have uh, lived the same way for 3,000 years. And it's been a symbiosis that have allowed both of these species to survive and thrive. And uh, of course, we all need to evolve, but it's certainly much more humane. Um, you know, night, since the 1970s, when uh, the agricultural bill produced a, a glut of soybeans and corn, and we pulled cows out of pastures where they were eating mostly grain and living, you know, not so not as bad a life. Now they're living in feedlots, the vast majority, living miserable lives. And and the meat they produce is fattier. Uh, it's much lower in omega-3 fatty acids and higher in inflammatory omega-6 fatty acids. So the direction we're going here in America, you know, the first good step might be to, you know, go back to the way farmers farmed a long time ago. And, you know, eventually, you know, the I, I like to think of you know, getting things that most people will do that will improve the situation, the aggregate. And then, you know, obviously getting to, you know, if you have a Dan Butner's way, we're all going to eat beans. <laughs> well, Dan, Dan, this is about healthy lifestyle and it's not about just the intake. Obviously you've just said it here that there's a pro-social element. They've got people who care about you, who protect you, who are with you, as you said, you know, on your worst days. But I really believe, and you, I know you know this, that animals are part of that pro-social experience, that your pets, uh, these goats, these sheep who are named, that is a social interaction that makes you smile. It makes you feel good. And I, I just have to believe that it's health promoting. And I've seen it. I wrote a book about it called The Bond. And I just know that animals are part of that pro-social experience. One of the... Uh... In our at Blue Zone cities, we've had over 7 million people in our uh, programs. One of the specific prescriptives we suggest, because we're about changing the environment, is to adopt a dog, uh, ideally a rescue. Um, and uh, we know that dog owners have about 20% uh, lower BMI, uh, lower rates of heart disease. And, you know, it might be because you know, the dog has to get walked every day and therefore, you know, guess who else gets walked every day? The human. But also research has shown that just patting a dog lowers cortisol levels, the stress hormone that occasions uh, inflammation. So you're absolutely right that, you know, looking at animals as uh, the pro-social uh, 
uh, creatures who can do us a lot of good is, and, and vice versa, is uh, not a bad idea. But I like the idea of people loving the chickens and the sheep oh, and the goats and, and being connected with them emotionally. It's important for them. I'm sure it, it's important for a lot of us. Farming, you know, as, a, as a, an ages old tradition, that bond, that husbandry, that very notion of husbandry is embedded in our vocabulary. Until about 1980 in Sardinia, animals actually lived on the first floor and the humans lived on the second floor. So they shared a home, the, the, the farm animals. So yes, they were literally an extension of the family. I'm quite sure my dog is taking years off my life, Dan. <laughs> it's not always the case that, that a dog will, will relieve, relieve stress. Uh, but but thank you, thank you for that. And um, what have we not asked, Dan, that, that you would like us to know about your your book, about your work? Where can people follow you? When's the okay. book on sale? The book's on sale now on Amazon. It's called The Blue Zones American Kitchen. Uh, I'm a writer for National Geographic. I'm not a cookbook writer. Um, so the book is uh, equal parts science writing. I I describe the diet of uh, other standard American. Uh, lost diet of longevity, as I call it, in the front. Uh, the, I believe we have the best photographer from National Geographic, David McLean. So there's several hundred beautiful photographs. And then we called through hundreds of uh, recipes to get a hundred recipes that are quick, tasty, and cheap. And uh, it's a great gift, I think. It's, it'll be out by, in time for Christmas. And if people have any questions for me personally, I'm really good at answering um, direct messages on Instagram. And my handle is at Dan Butner, or you can reach me on my uh, website, danbutner.com. And uh, I and love Butner's B-U-E-T-T-N-E-R. Yeah, that's just, right. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Okay. Dan, you've inspired me. I'm going to screw my ex-wife out of her Christmas gift. I'm going to keep your book. And I'm going to try <laughs> some of the recipes. So, so we'll, we'll send you another one. We, we want, we want you and your ex-wife uh, to live a long time. Um, just one last story before we leave. So I was, I got to hike with Wayne uh, for a week uh, in Slovenia and we went through a gate and there were three cows sort of just hanging out. And there were, I don't know, eight or 10 of us. And one cow sensed Wayne and followed him for about a hundred years. I wouldn't let him go. It was like, it was in total love. So it was like the, the animal recognized their biggest advocate. And you remember that way. Wayne's blushing because you know I'm right. Well, I told, I told my wife, I said, this is how it's done, Lisa. Come on. No, show me. You're gonna get nudged out of the way. (laughs) You know, I do. I just do believe that animals do have intuition about these sorts of things, and I just think they're so much smarter than we give them credit for. And uh, that was a fun hike, and you know that that country struck me, Dan, as a blue zones um, high level performer because people were tending to their very modest homes. They were outside, they were walking around. There's a lot of gardening. They're clearly eating a lot of whole foods and they didn't seem overly stressed. They were lean people in terms of of their body mass and uh, really struck me as a very livable 
uh, country and the communities within it were very livable. I had the same feeling. Dan, thank you. Uh, you're, you're in demand right now. I know this is a busy time with, with the release of the book. Our show notes will have all the information I mentioned, uh, but we're just really grateful for you and um, appreciate uh, the commonality we have to the extent that you're helping people, we're helping animals, and you've identified a very nice area where those two overlap. So, so thank you again. And, and thank you so much to our listeners for listening to the Animal Wellness Podcast. Be sure to visit animalwellnessaction.org for all of our news and information and to sign up for our news alerts. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and we invite you to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or Spotify. I've been your host, Joseph Grove, and we'll be back soon with another episode of the Animal Wellness Podcast.